It's here, season two of The Idea Fountain. In season one, every month, I interviewed somebody who has changed my life. Today, uh, we'll be talking to someone I've never met before in my life, Beth Comstock. Season two of The Idea Fountain, we're focusing on instincts and intuition. I recently read Beth's book, Imagine It Forward. I was blown away about how she navigated pressure situations, new jobs, and even setbacks with her killer instincts. Each month, I load up my house with people from all walks of life and talk to some of my favorite people. Let's bring them all into the room and kick off episode one, season two of the Idea Fountain. I This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. Okay, so I'm going to kick this off officially. Okay. And uh, do I, I can I th- do I look at you? Do I look here? We're do not videotaping, so whatever's okay. natural. Can I move do this? Do you want to do a mic check? Yeah. Can I move this around? Yeah. Okay. By the way, this is Forrest. Hi, Forrest. Hey, hey, hey. Some nice headphones, too. Yeah, they are nice. I love them. They match best pants. They do. You want to borrow them? I I may. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to kick it off really official. Beth Comstock built a career from storyteller to chief marketer to GE vice chair. In nearly three decades at GE, she led efforts to accelerate new growth and innovation, seeded new businesses, and enhanced GE's brand value and inventive culture. She oversaw GE Lighting and GE Ventures and served as the company's first chief marketing officer in 20 years. As president of Integrated Media at NBC Universal, Beth oversaw TV ad revenue and digital media, including the early formation of Hulu. Beth is a director at Nike and a trustee of the National Geographic Society, written about extensively in the media from the New York Times to Fortune, Fast Company, and Vanity Fair. She's been named to the Fortune and Forbes list of the world's most powerful women and is a LinkedIn top 10 influencer. Welcome, Beth Thompson. Thank you. Thanks, Joy. Thank you all. Do you want to meet everybody else now? <laughs> I mean, I really love bringing everybody's voice into the room, so uh, I know you're taking a bite of a chicken wing now. <laughs> Let's go. But, uh, the perfect time for your introduction. <laughs> go ahead. Why don't you kick it off? Uh, okay. Um, my name is Marquise uh, James. We'll just do short names right now. Okay, so one more time. Marquise. Hi, Marquise. Hey, I'm Alicia Smith. Hi, I'm Michelle Jubilee. Hi, Susanna McMillan. Hi, Kelly Benini. Rose O'Day. Angela Malloy. Sanai. Julia. Danny. Robert. Mick. Carla. Forrest. Sue Vaughn. Amy. Lori Richard. What a good crowd. It's a great crowd. Thank you all. I'm really an honor. Thank you. And, it's and great a- food. Oh, mm-hmm. Shout out to yes. the real Bonnie. Oh, this is, uh, Alicia's done catering for many Idea Fountain tapings, and this is the first week she's 100% on her own, uh, focusing on her business full-time. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this chat. Um, with the Idea Fountain, in the last year, every single month I interviewed somebody that's changed my life in some way, and uh, there are only so many of those. 
And so for season two, I have a new theme, and this is going to be the first interview of season two. And for season two, the theme is instincts and intuition. Would you say, Beth, that that has been a big part of your career? It has. I love that you're focusing on this because I don't think we talk enough about it, but it definitely has. I'm a very um, instinctive, intuitive person, and I think when things haven't gone well, it's often that I haven't been listening to that voice. And how do you settle in to really listen to that voice? Is there a way you discover it? Um, I, it's interesting. I'd say as I got more busy in my life, I feel like I lost that voice. So for one thing, it's for finding, just finding space to just, um, kind of just get away from the noise. Um, nature is a way I really re get reconnected with myself and that voice. And, um, certainly in the past couple of years, I've re reconnected with nature. And I think, cause I was really feeling like I had lost that voice. Um, one of the things I really liked and you said in your book was that there's an advantage to being an introvert mm. um, and you yourself consider yourself an introvert. Yeah. Which you, is said, you said we have that in common. Yeah, which is kind of amazing. I mean, who here would think I'm consider myself an introvert? People are shaking their heads. No. <laughs> and why do you say why do you consider how, how, do, how do you describe it? Well, it's interesting because I think really similarly, you had a social job, right? Yeah. You were yeah. head of communications. Uh, but I think that I'm more comfortable when I'm in a quiet space. And as much as I love people, I think even, for example, when we're in meetings and there's a lot of people yelling and shouting out their mm -hmm. ideas and want to be heard, I do better if I retreat, think about it, and then come back yeah. with a plan. Yeah, I'm the, exactly the same. And I think that's what I came to learn. I've just always been this introverted person, which is, to me, it's been more reserved, hold back. I'm also shy and there's an awkwardness about it in my head and they're, they're different things, but it, introversion really is that ability that you need to kind of conserve your energy. You give it all away and then you're like, I'm done. I gotta go, I gotta go back in. Um, I was never the loudest person. I was never the life of any party. Uh, maybe my own party. <laughs> I was the life of my own party. Maybe it was about it. Um, and that was always something, especially in business, business is very much an extroverts game. And, um, what I came to realize is that like extrovert is still part of me. I mean, introvert doesn't define me, but it did hold me back at some points. And um, I had to really work to overcome that, to not be so reserved, um, to put myself out there, even if my nature was, oh, I'm going to go back in. And like you say, that, that issue of I need to just go away and I need to, I need to come find time for myself. Like I used to love going to the movies by myself. Like that was a way that I would really recharge myself with just people would be like, you go by yourself. Oh my gosh, I, I really don't want you to go with me. I want to just go. And you know, so you, you have those certain places where you know, you, music was another one for me where I just felt I needed to recharge. Um, I've actually never gone to the movies by myself, but I think I might be the last person that hasn't seen A Star Is Born. So. <laughs> so I haven't seen it either. <laughs> I would go with you, but maybe that would defeat our <laughs> defeat our purpose. I really like, though, you gave some tips for yeah. introverts in the book. Does anybody else here consider themselves an introvert? Amy, uh, a few people, yeah. Uh, some people that I wouldn't expect consider themselves introverts, right? Like rappers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what were some quite a tips? few actors I think consider themselves uh, the tips a couple of tips that just 
Um, I think there are, one, there are some advantages to being an introvert. And so one, embrace the advantages of what it means um, because we're not the life of the party or the loudest, well, I should speak for myself, but um, the loudest people. Um, I think in, in settings, we're often good listeners. We're good observers. I found in business that um, I developed a skill as a good synthesizer. So at the end of a meeting, I was the one that would pull everybody together and say, here's what I heard you say. Here are the key points. Maybe I'd throw them a few of my end. By then, I had a bit of confidence. Um, and then I think for for yourself, if you're struggling in, a, in an arena where it is more extroverted, you do have to just challenge yourself to get out there. And so I, especially early in my career, I would come to an event like this and, well, I couldn't even imagine coming to the event, an event like this early in my career, but I would make it a challenge. Okay, I'm just going to go meet one person. Just gonna, I talked to Lori earlier, okay? I would have gone home after that. Okay, done. I'm done. I talked to Lori. Okay, now I'm done. Then the next time it'd be a challenge, I'm going to talk to two people. Okay, I talked to Alicia and Lori. Okay, now I can go home. Um, so it was a series of challenges to just put myself out there. The other thing is... Um, just recognize, for myself at least, this was partly introversion, but just being awkward. I had to get out of my head and just go, you know, they're not thinking what I think they're thinking. And even if they are, what can I do about it? So I, I wasn't listening to the, what people were saying. And so I had to get out of my head and be curious, which I am naturally, and just get into those conversations of, I want to learn. It's not, what am I going to say? It's, what are you doing? What are you thinking of? So that helped me get out of my head. There was one story in particular that I really uh, gravitated to where you used your intuition. And it was what happened around September 11th. Yeah. Um, well, really what happened after September yeah. 11th. Uh, I think everybody can remember what they were going through at that time for the rest of their lives. September 11th was the year that I realized I was a good DJ, not a great broadcaster. Because I could go on the air and talk about music, but in 2001, there was a 6.7 earthquake in Seattle while I was on the air, and then September 11th was unfolding. And that was such a different experience oh wow. to have to connect with an audience in a time of crisis. crisis. Yeah. So you were in a time of crisis, and you were leading the charge for communications, Tell everybody what you went through and how you really leaned into your intuition then. Yeah. Um, so 9-11, everybody's just in shock, right? The, the, the world, certainly in America, we were in shock. And at GE, we lost several employees, obviously just horrible. Our customers were, every business ground to a halt. Everybody was in just panic and feeling fearful. And so um, we were all like, what can we do? Our customers were saying, GE, what can you do? Can you help employees? What can we do? We gave money to the city. But it was that, a very intuitive moment of just feeling helpless, but saying, okay, what can we do? Well, what I knew how to do was tell a story. Let's do an ad. Okay, well, that was like the worst time possible to suggest an ad. First of all, why would you do an ad about your company? Why would the broadcast networks weren't taking it? So I was like, okay, let's just do an ad to express what people are feeling and try to use it to bring people together and, and kind of channel this moment. So I, the only resource we had was a print ad. I called our ad agency and I said, um, hey, you know, can you, we're gonna, how about this idea of doing an ad? They're like, that's the worst idea ever. That's really bad. And finally they were like, she's not going to quit. So they, they sent me a stack of stuff. I remember it was like a stack of stuff and none of it was good. 
And at the very bottom was this sketch of Lady Liberty rolling up her sleeves, stepping off the pedestal, uh, the Statue of Liberty. And um, she was like strong and moving forward. And it was like, that's it. That's, that's our, that says everything we're trying to say. And I, I wish I could remember exactly the words, but it was basically, you know, roll up your sleeves, get, we'll, 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 we'll get through this together, move forward. And by the way, a little small brought to you by GE. I took it to my boss. He was new. We had worked together now less than a year. He had been in his job for four days. And I said, let's do this ad. And he was up for it. So he said, okay, when he understood. And we called a lot of executives and people in the company. Everybody thought it was a horrible idea. Horrible, horrible. We're going to embarrass ourselves. And we did it. I was up all night. I was nervous. I was convinced like I was going to lose my job. This was going to look badly for the company. We did it and employees were incredibly proud. Customers were incredibly proud because it was a, it was that just channeling the zeitgeist. I don't know what else to say. It was just channeling the zeitgeist. And to me, the, it was really proud when we go a couple of days later to um, the stock exchange. I still remember smoke still smoldering. I mean, it was just out of a movie. And there inside the stock exchange had just opened and there the traders had posted and taped the ad to their kiosks. And I went down the street in New York City, and there it was at a, at a news-selling kiosk, and then at a bodega. And it was just that moment. And it wasn't about us. It was just we channeled that moment. And um, I, I was really proud of, that, <clears throat> proud of that moment. I don't know if you can articulate it, but it's one thing I'm still trying to figure out because I do feel very tapped into my intuition and I know that I know the answer but when you're in situations with extreme high stakes you know that was the biggest tragedy in our nation's history or sometimes when you have high stakes and there's a bunch of lawyers saying you can't do this or the government yeah what do you say when you just know trust me or I'm still figuring that out because you don't have the research you don't have the statistics how could you yeah I think you just have to say I've got uh, this is on me if it doesn't work that's usually what I'll say Uh, I feel I feel I have a really good instinct about this I usually try to bring some data to it too so that it's not just my intuition or like my gut feeling and I try to say, I, this is on me. I, and you need a good champion. In that case, I had Jeff Immelt, who was the head of GE, and he was a champion for that. And people were calling him up, this is really bad. And he's like, no, we're going to do this. So that helps too. Socializing it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, another thing that I really took from your book, this is going to be the top five favorite things of Imagine It Forward, <laughs> just by the way, um, is I was really impressed because I think that it's so easy to grow up and say, okay, I want to do this, so I'm going to get this schooling, and that's my career. I'm on that career trajectory. And I think it was Sheryl Sandberg that talked about, instead of the ladder of success, thinking of life more, your career is a jungle gym. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I thought that you really embodied that, and I was so surprised Um, even personally, when I first was told we should meet, everybody kept saying, you need to meet Beth from GE. And here I work in entertainment and I love people, but why do I need to meet her? And the more I found out about you, the more I couldn't believe that we had in common because you actually started in journalism, right? And I think even radio. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) And 
then did NBC Communications yeah. and then made that switch to GE. Yeah. And I know personally, even now as established as I am in my career, I've always worked in media and broadcast. If I just jumped over to GE, I don't know that I would have the confidence that I would understand the product. Yeah. And you probably, people would be like, what, what are you doing? Right. Which is exactly you what You feel it, like a big, I mean, yeah. how? Huh, have you lost your mind? And yeah. then just to even think of the Jungle Gym and then you being on the board of Nike or a trustee at National Geographic. These are such, there's a pretty wide range yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, how did you get to that point that you knew you could make those jumps and what, advice do you have for people that are kind of in one lane? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm a very curious person. And I think that's how I overcame my shyness, my introversion. And that's really what you're, you're telling is just a story of someone who's very curious. And I let my curiosity be my guide. Um, so it's that I mean, I, 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 it's why I tried to share it in the book. Um, I came from a very small town in Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. My parents were not well connected in the world. My dad was a dentist. My mom was a school teacher. Um, my town was my world, but I had this hunger, this thirst to just know about the world. I mean, I'm so excited to be part of National Geographic because I still remember getting those magazines and like looking at the globe and geography and I would just plot like I can't wait till I go to this country and what's it like and in college I is I studied biology but I loved anthropology that was my how people be are be, how they behave and so that just guided me and an instinct I don't I mean going from NBC to um to GE was very counterintuitive um I remember one guy as I was standing on the elevator I'd announced I was leaving he goes you know they sell light bulbs, right? Like, why would you be giving up this fabulous media career to go sell light bulbs? Which, it's ultimately, I did go sell light bulbs, but um, it was just like he couldn't, people couldn't imagine, but there was just, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to learn new industry. I just wanted to be part of that. And so that's really the jungle gym for me has been glomming on to kind of curiosity and how can I learn and what, where am I, where's it going to take me? And if people are looking for new opportunities, what advice would you have? Because especially when I think of the science side yeah. of things, I know people that had to go get a degree as a chemist or a pharmacist, but now exciting things are happening in green technology, yeah. but you might not be certified for that. How do they make those relationships and believe they're qualified to make yeah. that jump? Well, I um, I think one the world's going in their um, going in their their favor, and that um, they're just people are opening up much more to new interesting partnerships and looking for different perspectives. I hope. Um, I think a couple of things. I'm big on uh, sort of a mantra I have is make room for discovery, and I think everybody needs to do this. Um, and we all have so much to do in, in our day. And here I am going to recommend you make yet yeah, find even more time in your day. Um, you're exercising. You're being mindful. You're eating right. You're doing your emails. And now I'm saying you got to get out and discover. But I think you have to. So I think that's part of it. You have to get out of your daily focus of your expertise. If you're a chemist. Start asking, what are the future trends in chemistry? What conferences are you going to? And instead of just going and leaving, go up to three people and say, what trends are you following? What's interesting? What's the most shocking thing you've seen in our industry in the past year? Um, so you're just constantly kind of collecting information and understanding, building patterns 
um, patterns start to give you an insight to where the world's unfolding, where change is happening. And that gives you a certain expertise. Mm -hmm. So suddenly as a chemist, you're a chemist that's starting to see where trends are happening. And you start to bring a different value to your team. So it's things like that. I think just have to ask different questions. You have to put yourself out there. Um, you have to just show up in places that are tangentially related and eventually then start showing up in places that aren't related at all. I mean, I used to take the teams I worked with on field trips and because I do field trips and field trips would take us to places like, I'll give you two examples. One, going uh, every, we would once a month, we'd do Friday field trips and it would just be our team going to discover something local. It could be a new retail store, a university then it got more exotic with more budget and leadership teams once i went with a digital team and we went and judged boy band competitions in south korea because we were looking for digital trends and you know that gave us an expertise and a capability so depending on your budget you all everyone has time everyone has 10 percent of their time devoted to stuff they already know convert it to discovering something new so that's that's what i'd recommend and I love the whole concept of field trips. I've heard you're working on discovering your inner artist. I am. And you spend a lot of time going uh, and connecting with different creatives. Yes. And I'm still doing that. I mean, I've loved art I, since I was a little kid. In fact, um, my father, who's like the most honest, earnest guy on the world, uh, the only time he made me lie when I was seven and a half we were, he was trying to get me into an art class, and he said, tell the teacher you're eight, because you have to be eight to get in this class. And so I just from a very early age, art was part of my father's now an artist. He went from a dentist to being an artist. So art's always been part of my life. But I've been not had the confidence in it. And now that I'm in a new place and sort of starting all over again, I've been really pushing myself to get out there um, doing things like I have taken some art classes. I took an improv class. You know, just trying to get myself out there. I wrote the book, which was a different form of expression. I'm now trying to write different kinds of things. So just trying to put myself in the way of different ways of expressing myself. And it's really hard, especially after a, a career where hard charging and you think you know a lot and then you come in and you're like, it's a white space. It's good up here, but everything I've put on this blank canvas looks horrible. It's horrible. And you want to go give up because you're like, I'm supposed to know everything. And so I've found it's very humbling to do that. Yeah, I, I was really surprised years ago when I read The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron, and you had to, one of the exercises in the book was every week you had to go on an artist date with yourself. Yeah. Whether it was sitting down with Play-Doh or coloring books or going to a museum, and I was surprised how much that really opened me that? up in business. Oh, yeah. Do you still do that? Oh, yeah. And what do you I mean, do? there's racks of coloring Is books over right? there. I mean, there's everything. I look at creativity, flower arranging, you know, um, I do. I mean, there's all sorts. Of I did that this project. summer. I was doing flower arranging. Yeah, cooking is another creative. Yeah. I love that you mentioned Julia Cameron. I haven't done the artist date as disciplined as she says, but I do do the morning pages. Oh, that's great. That's been a discipline I've adopted, especially in doing the book. I really started it then, and I keep doing it. Yeah, I could be better at that side of things. Yeah. Um, uh, I talked about this last month. Lori and I were at a Billboard Women in Music lunch and they were talking about uh the magazine was talking about how they could cover women's issues better and one person raised their hand and said well let's start with um having you redefine your definition of power hmm, for the I billboard power list 
In your career, how have you really defined what's a success and not, especially when you're doing things that have never been done before? Yeah, that's such a great question, Julia. Really great. I, I thought a lot about power. Um, you know, I get put on lists or whatever, and they're nice in the moment. But to me, power is really about um, the connections you have, the give and take that you have. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of in my career is just the fact that I've um, worked at myself to open myself up to new connections, um, to new discoveries. And so to me, power is the, the just the connections you have and the ability to help each other. That's how you build. To me, that's power. That's how I define power. And when I look at um, the teams I've worked with and the, the power we've created together, it's that momentum together, like that's power. It's not your job title. It's not where you are in the corporate hierarchy. In fact, I think when you what you start to realize as you work in companies, I mean, you probably you know just because you have a title, it often means people are going to like go out of the way not to do something because you you have a title. They're like, well, wait a minute, I don't need to listen to you. Um, power is about the ability to show up for people, the ability to have a connection, and people go, you know, she cares. She's really in this. I'm going to be there. I'm going to give back because she's giving. To me, that's it's the it's the modeling you do. It's not the title. It's not uh, it's not it's not any of those things. Well, and I loved how you were such an early adopter for the program I Village. Yeah. Talk about that, and then where it ended up taking you. Yeah. Well, and when I was at NBC the last time doing digital media, I sort of take you back there. Um, media was very nervous about digitization and YouTube had just emerged and everybody was panicked. Oh my gosh, we don't know how to make videos of cats playing the piano. What do we do? And they were equally like bemused, like, ha 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 ha, so cute and panicked. And so that, you know, I came in in a role um, as the digital disruptor. I had to hire a team of digital disruptors. And we, first thing we did was we acquired iVillage, which was this women's community. And um, in, in, in our strategic brain, it was going to be Facebook, although Facebook was barely Facebook at that time. But it was about community and connection. And frankly, we messed it up. We messed it up because the corporate antibodies came in. We were the cool kids against the not cool kids. Just, we did everything wrong. And iVillage didn't get off to such a good start and it just the company didn't support it and ultimately it ended up being closed but out of that came a lot of new things i mean we created a digital studio to test new content and out of that came sort of the recognition we needed to do things better ourselves and out of it came hulu which was a partnership with fox and so i learned a lot from that but i i always regretted that we had that that community that could have there was this amazing group of women they were already engaged online, the kind of first generation of women online. And you think about what they could have done for the Today Show or Bravo or any of the NBC properties if we had given ourselves over to them. Instead, we wanted to micromanage it, we, you know, typical company but things. But what I love and what I took from the story is here's this situation where you took this jump into digital and it didn't work. Yeah. And it would be really easy to say, oh, I'm going to go kick rocks. Oh, digital, I don't know if it's that my thing. But instead... When the second opportunity for digital came up, which P.S. was Hulu, yeah. you said, I know how to do this. We're going to do everything different than last time. Yeah. Well, and it was a team effort. I mean, we partnered with News Corp because we had learned we couldn't do it on our own. Reminded people that they had failed at MySpace. So we were both kind of two losers at that point. And so we realized we needed each other. Um, and we knew we needed to hire somebody from the outside. So Jason Kyler was the founder of Hulu. I mean, we, we seeded the momentum, but he was really the guy. And that was another big learning that 
we had to bring an outsider in to make this happen that we were not capable of doing it. Those are humble moments in companies uh, that you have to fight for. And oh, we, the fights we had, and that's what I shared in the book, I, uh, the fights we had, I mean, they were pretty brutal. And that's often what happens is you fight against each other, not kind of fight for the future. Right. And you have a daughter, right? I have two daughters. Two daughters. Okay, so this will be interesting to hear what you think about this. I heard someone say recently that um, we don't have any issues with young girls being empowered. They think they can be anything. I can be an astronaut. I can be you know, a basketball player, anything I want. I can do anything. But that's leading to um, them being focused and wanting to work hard and be perfect and do everything right so they can be the best. And uh, the interview I was hearing, uh, they were saying that we're not teaching our girls how to fail. Hmm. And um, so they're not taking as many big risks. Totally agree um, with that. How do you learn how to yeah, fail? I, how do we do that differently? That's such a hot button for me. And as a mother of two daughters, I wish I had done more of that with my daughters. I, I do think, I think it's men and women. I think we're just in a culture right now. Certainly I learned this in business where we don't give people much room to fail. We expect precision, short-term thinking often that comes into businesses with investors. And look, that, there's a reason for that, but also we're not making space for people to try, test and learn. Um, think about it for, for, as a parent of daughters, I feel like I really fought to instill creativity in, in the upbringing of my daughter. Some of my proudest and most memorable moments for us were just making things and crafts. And just my daughters were very creative, also very independent. But the best I think I could have done would have been to sort of give them a sense of figure it out. And I think I probably micromanaged their upbringing more than I should have. Um, to the point about the failure, I do think society kind of comes in there. And yes, you can be anything, but you have... I think it is harder for women to fail. I think it is. There's a certain, there's a different set of rules. I think there's a confidence issue that 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 women have have or society instills in them. So um, I do. I, I in companies I saw this all the time. People are just afraid to try things. And <clears throat> I saw that some with my daughters. Um, I, <clears throat> my older daughter's in business. My younger daughter's an actor. And um, my younger daughter especially. I mean, she's learned a lot about failure. That. I could never have taught her just pursuing an acting career where every day it's rejection. Every day, every day, every day. And I think, wow, I'm so proud to see her go through that, but what would we have done to instill some of that in her and her sister earlier? Right. It's tough. <clears throat> it's really tough. You don't want to see them fall down, but... No, you don't. But I think as a parent, you have to. And, and I look at where, where we're going as a society. We're trying to give everybody the answers. And I talk, I talk, I've been doing my own little independent research with high school teachers, college professors. And they're saying that kids are afraid to fail because men and women, because they want to be successful, because they already want to know the answer. I saw this in business. And it's it's not, it, this is what I call the imagination gap. It's the fact that we're not instilling more creative problem solving in kids and they're growing up to come to companies and expecting to be perfect and it doesn't work that way. You're talking about uh, micromanaging your kids and I don't have kids at this point, but I can't imagine being a parent in this age of social media. Yeah. I think it's really tough. And again, think back to that, 
you need some space to figure it out. I remember my younger daughter, this would have been um, early in the early days of Facebook, coming and seeing her, and she was like crying, just rivers of tears. And I was like, what's the matter? And she's like, you know, somebody just said on my honesty box, you know, that I'm stupid or something. And I was like, well, why are you on the honesty box? Like, that, I have an answer for you. Don't be on honesty box. She's like, but I love it. Um, and so I think that's this dynamic we're in, right? We want the feedback, um, but we maybe don't, we don't know what to do with it. And, and so I think some of that is really hard. It makes way for bullying. People don't know how to deal with it. And I think in general, we're, we're adaptation animals. And yet technology may be outpacing a little bit our ability to adapt right now. We're going to figure it out. I'm confident. But we've got we've to keep that in check and constantly remind ourselves we're humans. We're humans on the other side of that. We're talking about young women, but for all the women in the room, a really important law was just passed in California having to do uh, mandating that there be women on boards. And I think the law is if there's a board of five, there must be at least two women, six or more, three, eight, four. And um, I'm just going to speak for my peers and my community. I don't think a lot of people really understand the power of being on a board or how you get on a board or what it's like when I've only been on nonprofit boards. But I remember the first time I sat in on a board meeting, I was like, whoa, this is grown up stuff, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so could you talk a little bit about your experience with boards, what you get out of it, how people might get onto one and um i i mean i think there's something like in just the publicly traded companies in california there's going to be 463 open boards it's amazing if yeah. this law goes yeah. into effect yeah i think it's a really healthy move because if companies aren't doing it on their own they got it. somebody's going to have to take action i mean really you'd hope companies would do it on their own for the basic reason of Diversity breeds innovation. The more perspectives, the more innovative you have. The more perspectives, the more able you are to serve your customers. It just seems like it should be the law of life and the law of business. But if people can't do that, it must be law, right? So I think what you mentioned, you're on nonprofit boards. That's a great step. I think any kind of community activation, being on school boards, those are good leadership opportunities to show. And we're all going to, those of us who are on boards, need to make sure we start to have a list of people and do. This is some of what I I do. I think Cheryl Sandberg's done this very well, where you develop a list of people you know and people you're you're able to recommend to recruiters. Because what often happens is they call the same people they know. Um, And so you need to, it's our responsibility to say, no, you need to call Julie Pilot. Here's why you need to know Julie. Here's why I can vouch for her. And so I think women who are in these positions need to advocate um, for more and create the network and, and make that momentum in, in addition to the companies. Uh, what does a board, what does being on a board do? I mean, there's a governance role of boards in the sense you're, you're helping to make sure that the, the company is, is doing what it needs to for all stakeholders. Um, you, there's only so much you can do in the other respect because you're not running the company. The leadership of the company runs the company. They don't need the board to do that. The board is a resource. The board needs to help them troubleshoot. The board helps them, you know, kind of deal with issues that, that emerge, bring different perspectives. But you have to remember you're not running that company. And so anyone who thinks I'm going to be on a board because I can go run something, wrong, wrong, wrong bet. Go put your energy somewhere else. I just can't even imagine... Here you're at GE, and then 
was it while you were at GE, you got asked to be on the board of Nike? Yeah. I mean, do you go to Portland and show up in a super room and sit with my boss, Tim Cook? I mean, does <laughs> I do. just, everybody I do. just phone in? I uh, do. Yeah, do. I do. Yeah, I sit and we and sit. again, that's a pretty big gap. Like, how did yeah. that even come to be? Yeah, that I got to sit with how that they called me? I mean, yeah, I mean, again, yeah. <laughs> I believe you're talented. It just seems like the companies are so different. They are so different. Well, partly it is... Um, because I sort of made it my business to get out of the company, go discover, go build my network. Um, I was in marketing. Uh, people knew, you know, that was, I made that my business. So uh, I was on people's radar in a way that if I had just kept my head down in GE and not built, built up my network outside, I wouldn't have been on anyone's radar. I can tell you Nike doesn't need me for any marketing expertise. They're excellent at that. What I think I've been able to bring is more of a global perspective, strategy, just an outside provocateur. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, when you join a board, you also have to think about who else is on there. I mean, when else am I going to have an opportunity to see Tim Cook in action? So the other people on the board are also something that you get out of it. That's incredible. Um, I still have a question or two, but I want to see open it up to the room. I do have a question because um, I followed you for a while. I Thank you. I absolutely admire your entire trajectory. Um, my question is, if especially nowadays, right, with a lot of the tension that's happening. If you were to create utopia in terms of community in the world, what would that look like? Because I'm sure you've been around a lot of futurists. And then what are those steps you think we need to take to get there? Yeah. Well, I think it is that give and take where you have a shared mission and you're trying to make make the world a better place. You have sort of a contract. I, I don't mean like a, legal, like a lawyer's there, but you just have a human contract, a bond that just says we have a commitment that we're going to do this. I saw it in clean tech and the initiatives I led at GE that, you know, we were going to we were going to make business sense and environmental sense. And we could do that. It was a contract we have with our customers, with the world. That can happen. If I had my own community that I'd want to be part of Utopia, it would be about knowledge. It would be about learning. It would be about a, a hunger for learning in the world. And I worry right now in the world, some people are giving up on learning. Um, they're too busy. They think they know the answer. They don't want to do the homework. I would have a contract of just curi the curiosity tribe, and we would all be in search of, uh, of learning and, uh, and exploration. We'd go back to the old classics as well as start to ponder the future. Uh, we'd, we'd learn from each other. We'd, uh, you know, I, that, that would be the utopia that I would be part of. Um, but with that, we'd become a responsibility. You don't just take, you give. Um, you bring other people along, and um, you, you leave it better than where you started. What's one book besides your own that you would share with people? Yeah, I um, I was inspired by several books in writing. I love Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, and not just because I'm on uh, the board of Nike, but um, I mean, right? It's an amazing book. It's just uh, it's a business book. It's a life lesson book. If you haven't read it, uh, he's very vulnerable, very open. Um, another book I recommend that was inspired me was just Twyla Tharp's Creative Habit. Um, and I tried to instill some of that in some of the practices that I shared and the challenges. And um, I think everybody, if you define yourself as creative, you'll still find this useful. If you're somebody who's hearing this and you think, I'm not creative, trust me, do a few of her challenges and, and her little exercises, and she will unlock your everyday creativity. And I found, you know, here I'm a business person, and I found great um, insight from a choreographer. So that, those would be two books I could recommend. 
First of all, I'm thoroughly enjoying hearing you speak, and it was nice talking to you earlier, and I love the Jungle Gym analogy. It's really great. It is, and um, and Julie's like this too, but I, I have so many interests, and I have so many things, and I'm a very risk-taking, go get it. I will always advise people to take the leap. However, when you do that, there's always that moment of free fall. What is your advice for people in that moment of free fall? I see some people shaking their head. <laughs> some people might be in free fall in here. And Lori, how do you define free fall? Like, what's that mean? So you've taken the, so let's say you're going to move to New York and you're going to pack it up and you don't know what to expect. You know what it is when you're in the uncertainty? Yeah. The uncertainty yeah. is really scary. Yeah, it is scary. Yeah, so I um I don't like the uncertainty either. And I think the first thing I would advise is you don't like you don't have to like it to to do it. So it, accept that this is uncomfortable. Accept that this I don't know the answer here. Um, but it's a continual feedback loop. I think you're just you know you're one you've made the decision. What what are you going to do at this point? You're in free fall. You can't go back. I'm on the flight to New York. I can't get the pilot to turn around. I got to go. I got to get off the plane. I got to go. I'm going to take one step today. I'm just going to, what did I figure out? I'm going to come back and I'm going to regroup and I'm going to take two steps. It's just, to me, it's those kind of things. Um, I do think getting with other people and sort of sharing that free fall, getting the feedback loop piece of it too from other people. How did you deal with this? What did you think? I found that really, really comforting. Um, But just realizing it's uncomfortable to feel like you don't know it. I feel like I ended up being good at ambiguity and I called myself a fog flyer because I just had to make myself I don't know the answer and just say I don't know give over to that I don't know it doesn't mean I liked it and I still don't like it I'm a very organized this year I um I left my company in in December it was a bit more abrupt than I expected a lot more abrupt I don't want to say a bit a lot more abrupt and um I kept trying to structure things for me in the early part of this year because I was used to structure and there was the best thing I could have done was just to go with it and wallow in it. And that that's really what I is the best advice I have taken for myself and been given is just wallow in it. Just kind of give yourself over to it and just kind of go through it. to get you to that certain point versus maybe your ego or versus your fear I mean how do you know what to trust? Yeah, I don't always. And I, I will say, usually when I'm most confused, it's when I am confused about that. I have so much incoming that, um, and I, I, there was a great New York Times article in the past year, I'm happy to forward it to you, about a woman saying, she was basically surmising that because she was in middle age, she had lost her ability to, in, in to, to have intuition. But then she kind of came out and she said, no, I'm just living a cluttered life. And I've just filled up too much stuff in my life and I'm not giving myself to listen. That resonated with me a lot. So I, um, I, I do simple things. Um, I, um, I actually shared in the book, I, um, I actually didn't, I had an opportunity to go to Apple and I didn't take it earlier in my career. And I, I um, really struggled with that decision because it was a big <laughs> opportunity. And that was an example of the kind of things I do where I'm like, ah, the fear 
the anxiety, the listening to everybody else. And the first thing I do is I kind of write, a, I just write all the pros, cons, my fears. I, I, I actually, in that decision, I still kept my little spreadsheet and it's all handwritten. And it's just a way of I just download my brain and I ruminate and I ask everybody I, I know, what do you think? What do you think? But then I have to make a decision. And then I go to bed and I say, I'm going to kind of sleep on it. And then when I wake up in the morning, kind of my first reaction is my gut. And that's just what I go with. That's just served me really well. And if I still wake up the next morning and I'm anxious, usually I'll take a walk. So walking is another thing for me. I get out in nature. I live in New York City, so it's like the West Side Highway of New York City. There's not, um, but um, you know, that's another thing to just try to get myself in another position, so, and then I can come back and look at it differently. Your intuition's always there. It's always there. Um, the other thing I, I did recently that I. Um, I went back and I read, um, I found these old files and I found a report I did when I was 14. It was my autobiography when I was 14. Trust me, it was not, there was nothing, nothing you wanted to know about me then. But I found this little passage that I, I wrote, um, at 14 I wrote, I'm, I'm so ambitious. I want to be 50 different things in my life. And then I started to talk about the things I wanted to be. And one of them was just like, I love nature. I want to climb mountains. And, you know, and sometimes I find it's good to go back, to go back to a time in your life when you were maybe more pure of thought, more, more clear of your intention and just take yourself back there and go like, I'm still that person. I'm still 14 years old wanting to be 50 different things and I'm going to own my ambition. And anytime I've questioned that, it was always there. So that's also another thing that I found helpful. Um, you talked a lot about your creativity and kind of the evolution of um, your learning. When you when you are looking for creative inspiration and um, and you're being curious and whatnot, how are you able to manage that from like a strategic standpoint? You know, you you obviously don't have a lot of free time, if any, um, and so you have the world as your oyster. And how do you kind of manage all that? You're strategically curious. Well, I do keep room to be not strategically curious, to just be out there and not have the pressure of, okay, this time has to have a, a, a ROI, if you will, to my, so I always create this time for serendipity. For I, I kind of a big believer in sort of pattern, getting out in the world, making connections, seeing patterns and having that guide me. Um, but then I do think you have to have a strategic filter. I'm going to go discover, uh, even example, um, looking at, um, I, I did a lot of early discovery in maker spaces and, and went out and like lived, I didn't literally move in, but I went out and I'd spend days with people who were at maker fairs or hacker spaces in Brooklyn or other places. There, partly I was curious, it was a trend I was watching. There was a strategic intent of uh, my company's in manufacturing. I mean, you're at Nike in manufacturing. I needed to understand that. Um, so there was a strategic filter of why I needed to do it, but I also had to have the serendipity of go places that were very different. So that's how I try to toggle back and then continue to refine the, the strategy and the serendipity. But I was very shameless in saying, it's not clear what, what I'm doing in this discovery right now. Um, and I would, I became the kind of person that I would, people would contact me over the transom and I would meet with them. No, not everybody. I mean, not everybody would say, hey, can I meet with you? And I'd be like, yeah. Um, but I kind of was my thing to people pitch me with a good idea and I go come and talk to me because it was a way to explore and see different things. And again, not, I don't think everybody has to do that, but that really served 
me. It gave me an asymmetrical way to see the world. It gave me an asymmetry. I could see things happening in a way that maybe people who only stayed in a very limited focus and said, if it doesn't meet this business objective, I saw something happening over here. I think you have to make room for it. Angela, I would love to ask you a content question. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a little of both. I think we probably, I think we're not going to go back. There's, you know, we're going to look at the, it's the tension in the world. For every trend, there's a counter trend, right? You've got these media companies that are getting bigger and bigger, yet there's a proliferation of content being created. We're here. Julie's a content company, right? Julie's got her own content capabilities. I ask anybody, right? Netflix, what are they watching? Books they're reading, podcasts they're listening to. It's, it's crazy. I think it's how we're all expressing ourselves. We're all able to share our expression in the world. And so I don't think that goes away. And I think we just have to set our filters. We have to make room for the discovery and have good curators who advise us where, where we're going to go. But I would still be advising every company, every person to express themselves, if nothing else, for themselves. I don't know. I kind of imagine some future, some future human being that comes back and we're all contributing some, to some archaeological dig that they're going to do in the future. And, you know, my father was, um, uh, I said he's an artist, but he got there by, um, by doing, he studied a certain kind of art history, or, 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 uh, folk art in our town. And I remember he used to bring back these like ledgers and diaries of how these people made this stuff. And it's so fascinating. And we're all now leaving those artifacts for people in the future to see how we lived and make connections to us. So I think there's a lot of reasons to think about express expression. Um, so anyway, that, that's how I think you're leaving some kind of footprint in the universe. And hopefully if enough of us shift that to positive storytelling, just connecting, like sharing the, I felt it was important to share my failures more than my successes. Um, to say, I learned this. I didn't do this right. Here's a humble story. Here's a bragging story. Um, and I think if more of us were more open that way, we might get to a different place. But again, I'm an optimist, and that's what I'm going to tell you. I heard your uh, interview on Marketplace earlier this year. With Kai, yeah. yeah. I was running an R&D and innovation team and the parent company and the parents' parent company and their parent company, Carlisle, and all the way down the chain had some down quarters and the first thing that gets cut is, is innovation yeah. R&D. And, you know, all of a sudden we became the nice to have instead of the need to have. I know, so frustrating. So counterintuitive and and. I heard your interview at exactly the right time because I remember I was driving. It was like a week after I left the company. And, you know, you talked about knowing when to make your exit, too. And it sort of gave me this whole perspective on dig dignified exiting. Yeah, yeah. And that actually, if I'm at a company that isn't placing priority on forward thinking, and um, 
education, then that's not a company that I can thrive at. And I really connected with what you said about just knowing the right time and the right set of circumstances. And it really helped me reframe. So this is less of a, a question. Of more that's great to hear. Yeah, that's great to hear. What had happened is like, wait a second, like that actually is, is really fortuitous for me because it would have not ended well regardless. So I love that as an example, back to your point too. I think there are these moments when you want, you know, you kind of need to hear something and then sort of the serendipity. And again, back to more people putting their perspectives out, you need to hear those things sometimes. Yes. And um, this is also just a, a side note, but there's two books as, as I was listening to the conversation. Um, one is about failure that I read this year um, by Pema Chodron. It's called Fail, Fail Again, and Fail Better. Hmm. And it's a... Um, transcript of a commencement speech that she gave at Naropa University and she talked about you know everyone sort of talks about like oh we need to learn from our failures and use them as a fulcrum and an opportunity blah 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 like she had a whole different take on failure which is all about depersonalizing it that the reason we struggle with failure is because we become the Mm -hmm. failure in the story we tell ourselves so it's like I'm a failure not I this failed. thing that I yeah. did failed, right? Yeah. And there's a huge difference, and that's why we are actually genetically averse to failure because it makes us feel physiologically like we, we're in harm's way because we're, we're powerless. And that completely turned my, my thinking. Such a great perspective, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean for, you know, you're talking about like with your daughters and, you know, they're like teaching them about failure. Yeah. This is a book. It literally take you an hour to read. Uh, great record. Thank you. And the other one is called Quiet. Yeah. Power of Introversion. Yeah. No, I definitely am a, I'm a big fan of Susan Cain's. Yes. It's a really good book. Yeah. Yes. Really good. Yeah. It's interesting that the failure piece is such a good perspective on that. And I do think we need to reframe it. I mean, I don't think Silicon Valley's helped anyone these days with the, well, on a lot of fronts we could say that, but with, with the kind of fail fast, fail small, like, you know, it's just like you just do it and then you move on to something else. I mean, if it's not, how do you succeed if you don't do the failure? Um, but I like that idea of not personalizing it. I don't know if you felt this way in innovation, but I found for me, the shift was, it wasn't about my idea. In fact, that was probably destined to fail. It was about a better way, and it was about everybody feeling that they contributed to that idea, so that gave you that perspective. When it's your idea, it's about ego. We were having that question earlier, right? It's it, The intuition and all that doesn't take over because it's, it's about my idea as opposed to, no, this is happening. We're going to make this happen, and, and um, that m- made me think of the flip side of that as also an innovation. Yeah, so that I would actually describe my role as building Exactly. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you're creating this surround sound of change and innovation so people can find it on their own. You can't tell people to do that. Rose? You talked about being an introvert, which I would also have described myself as that. No one I know would ever put those words to me. But as women in business, we've come a long way, but yet we haven't. And so when you were in a leadership position um, with a senior title or even um, leading the charge for the next person, you're perceived in a certain way. Um, Although you describe yourself as an introvert, in the positions that you've been in, have you also been perceived in the way that 
I think I have been perceived, which is taking the word assertive into bossy or you know those words that none of us like to be described as. And how have you addressed that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of B words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bossy being probably the nicest of them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I, I worried about that a lot. But then after a certain point, it's like, well, I just going to do my job. And, and so I just kept trying to bring it back to making it about making the work really good. That was the, my, my only antidote was, well, they can't take my work away. They can't take my good work away from me. So if I make the work really good, they can call me whatever they want, but they can't take the work away from me. So that was how I dealt with it. And, and, and for me, as I thought about it, I, because I was a woman, because I was in, especially in a tech company where I was more focused on marketing and create, creative aspects, I was actually, I grabbed and I think was given license by doing that to be a bit more creative. I felt far more creative um, at GE than I did at NBC. And um, some of that I pushed for, and some of that they're like, they, you know, whatever. So I got also C words, crazy, I don't get it, what, you know. So, but, but those I felt I could, I, I kind of went to owning those more than recoiling from the bossy or whatever, because that again was something I felt I had a little bit more capable. It was more of a strength. So that is how I, how I, I learned. It was not easy, but that's as I reflect back, that's what I was able to do. <laughs> those are the things that are always hard to overcome and, and teach the next generation that you can still be successful but you still have to create different boundaries yeah you do you do yeah I think you do and, and just realize that people especially in cultures where they don't have enough difference they're judging you from the minute they see you on your difference um, and so, you know, I, our, I think our responsibility, if we're the different one, is to make sure there's more difference, that you're not the only different one. I remember once going to a training program where we, they, we had to go away together for three weeks, and it was me and 35 guys for three weeks. Like, that was horrible. That was like my definition of hell. It was horrible. Um, and, you know, I would made a commitment, like, I am going to make sure no one ever has to go through that again, right? It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. And so I think there's also that sense of you gotta you gotta make sure you stand for difference. Did you have one more question tonight? Yeah, um, I know kind of a, a hot topic is corporate culture, and you know more from your GE experience probably. But um, as a leader, can you talk to us a little bit about how you influence corporate culture and making sure that it trickles down kind of to to all different groups and, and different folks? Yes, and I love that question, and I. I thought a lot about it because it's back to something we were saying. I mean, you, corporate culture, you can't, you can't command everybody to change. You can't command everybody to – you just can't command. People have to feel it. They have to see it. It's, it's very complex. I found in terms of – what we struggled with at GE were a lot of things, but just the speed with which we needed to change and the ad adaptation that needed to happen at scale. And – yeah, the boss of the company can say do this, but until people feel they have the freedom, the trust, the capability to do it, they're not going to do it. And so to me, it comes down to kind of macro climate and micro climate. 
And I think in a company, you're trying to build a macro climate, but it really comes from each team creating their own microclimate. Yeah, you have a framework of here's what's important to our culture, but every team has to make it their own and do it in their own way. And you have to have your own contract as a team that says, we're going to hold ourselves accountable. We're going to be we're going to be truthful. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have feedback loops. You're going to tell me when it's not going well. I'm going to tell you when it's not going well. We're going to respect ideas. We're going to listen. Whatever. I mean, those. I would start with those. But I don't see how you can change the whole corporate culture until you start with the team that you're part of. And too often what happens is you're waiting for some grand force to come down and say, this is the way it is. And it starts with you. And I think it's empowerment. And I think it's movement making. And I think the best cultures give people the freedom to do that. Um, And they have feedback loops. And they know, they don't just go once a year, how's it going? How are you doing? Great. We've done an employee survey. We've done our annual review. And that, that those days are gone. Every day you have to be getting some kind of feedback loop. How am I doing? Can I adapt to change? Are we holding each other responsibility? So those would be somehow I think about it. You talked a little bit about how there was a point in your career you were working with Steve or talking to Steve Jobs about maybe coming to work at Apple. Yeah. And I really enjoy, I've been at Apple five years, but I never, Steve was already gone by the time I went to work there. And I love speaking to people at our company and just finding out if there was anything they really took from him or what they learned from spending time with him. Did you spend enough time that you feel like you really got something? Well, I think because he became such this mythic character, to spend any time it gets magnified, right? I mean, I probably spent a couple hours with the guy all total, right? I mean, you know, it's not like... Um, and, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I think his intensity really stuck with me, you know? He, he, was, uh, he was very intense. I, I, I had two opportunities to go work there, and I turned them both down, which in the, uh, you know, it, it was... Uh, I had the right strategic reason for doing it. It wasn't the right thing for me. But what 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 I I liked his um, the first time it was a very specific job. The second was he was like, hey, kind of a figure it out kind of job. He was willing to take a risk on someone like me who came from GE, not really your kind of Apple kind of company and say, like, I think you could do stuff here. Take a risk. I'm willing to take a risk on you. Take a risk on us. And I always thought that was a really fresh approach. I regretted that I missed that opportunity to be made better. I think he was very tough. That scared me a little bit in some respects, but everyone I talked to said that they made him better. And so when I had any regret about that, it was that I missed that opportunity for him to be made better. And I knew I wouldn't like it, but I would have come out the other end better. I love that we could have been coworkers, but I'm glad that we're here tonight. <laughs> we could have been. Thank you, Julie. This has been really amazing. You're, you have such great curiosity and I really some great questions. So thanks for letting me be part of this evening. Thanks again so Thank much. You. Thanks, Beth. Julie. Everybody, get her book, Imagine It Forward. What Thank a you. phenomenal conversation. Thanks again for listening to the Idea Fountain. If you liked it, I appreciate you sharing it with a friend. Uh, spreading the word, or even giving it a rating on iTunes. You can check out more and sign up for a newsletter on theideafountain.co or catch up on IG at The Idea Fountain. Thanks so much for listening.